don't know about you guys, but uh, you ever misplace anything? Does it bug you to when you misplace? I mean, it really bugs me is when I misplace something. Like the other day, I was looking for my car keys. And I wandered all over the house looking for them, and they were in my pocket. You ever done that? Or, or, or one time, or one time I was uh, wandering around the house and trying to find something, and, and, uh, and Vicky said, well, she said, she, my wife said, no, I didn't lose it. I said, well, what did you lose? Oh, she was, I was helping her look for something. She said, I didn't lose anything. I just misplaced it. Well, if it's misplaced and you never find it, it's lost, right? Isn't that kind of the deal? So this whole thing of, of misplacing things, uh, things that you sometimes are right there in front of you, uh, we're going to talk about that today. And I'm not going to talk about things, but I'm going to talk about something else that we can misplace in our life, something we can lose. Uh, and that's our spiritual, spiritual passion, our spiritual joy, and our, uh, our even sometimes faith in God. We can, we, can, we can lose that. Now, we've been talking about a guy named Elisha for the last several weeks. This is the last week of the series. Next week, we start a whole new series called Scripture Alive, which I'm going to be looking at and I laid out recently. It's uh, kind of a compilation of series of sermons. Uh, as I went to the Holy Land, my wife and I back in uh, November, and we spent the first time I'd been there, and we spent uh, two weeks there. And uh, as I encountered some things there, we're going to be looking at some scriptures that kind of came alive to me uh, and, 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 and through that. But uh, some things mostly about the life of Jesus. The first one, though, is really my encounter at the Wailing Wall. Next week, we're going to talk about that uh, and what prayer has to, what Jesus had to say about prayer. So we're going to talk, start there. But uh, we've been talking about this guy named Elisha. And uh, we've been talking about the first week we talked about how he um, burned some plows. Uh, that was the first week we talked about. The second week about how he, uh, taught, he said that we need to dig some ditches. The third week we talked about how we need to gather some jars. And then last week we talked about a lady whose uh, son was healed from the dead. And then she even, and she got a son and she didn't even ask for the son. You know, God sometimes does things in our life that we don't, uh, uh, you know, don't even ask for. And things that sometimes uh, are miraculous in, 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 in our lives. And God is always there for us. And so we, that's where we are. Now today we're going to look at probably a passage that's in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to turn there, 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to look at a passage that really is maybe one of the most unusual miracles in all the Bible. Uh, it's unusual because it seems to have no real purpose. Uh, it's kind of a weird passage in the midst of all these credible things that, uh, that, uh, that Elisha's been doing because we're not even going to look at a, I could have extended this series for another several weeks because there's so many other great stories. Uh, and I encourage you, if this hasn't pricked your interest in a li- at least bit to at least study this, but go back and read 2 Kings, uh, the first few chapters, and look at the stories of, of Elisha because uh, there's a lot of other things he did. Uh, he healed water uh, that made it, made it, uh, made it pure again. Uh, like I shared, he raised a boy from the dead. He provided for a widow who was about to lose uh, her two sons. Uh, in chapter 5, which we didn't even look at, he heals a guy named Naaman from leprosy. And then a really cool thing he did was uh, when an army was going to come and attack him and, and try to take him down, he, he made the whole army blind. Uh, that was a pretty amazing trick. So he has all those things. So we come to this one story, though, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that seems to have really little or no purpose, but as we look at it, it kind of is a good way to wrap up the series because it's a, it's a story. The story is very simple. It's about a guy who loses a borrowed axe head, and, and, and it's a big deal here because uh, God uses it, and he, he loses it into the, into a water, uh, into the water, and, and at, once I was at the Jordan, I understand why you could lose it in the Jordan because the Jordan is just a nasty river. I mean, it is brown. It's not even clear in any sense. You think the Jordan, you know, where Jesus was baptized was... 
this wonderful, no, no, oh man, it was, we had a baptism service, we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, there at the Jordan River, uh, some people were uh, not baptized for the first time, but rebaptized in a sense, a symbolic way of being there where Jesus was doing it, and boy, it was cold, and it was dirty, you know, you're wondering if you come out, if you're going to be brown when you come out, so you can understand, this guy was on a riverbank uh, cutting some trees down with an axe, and the axe head flies off, and he goes into the water, he loses it. Uh, well, he'd be upset, and you'll understand more because, and it doesn't seem like a big deal, but you need to understand that iron was a very valuable thing in that day. It wasn't, you know, all of us probably have an axe in our, in our garage or in our shed or somewhere along the way we use, and we don't know where we last used it because we don't use it too, that often, but I have pulled mine out yesterday to make sure I still had mine, and I, you wouldn't believe how rusty it was. I haven't used it in a long time, so I spent yesterday afternoon cleaning my axe head. I thought about bringing it today, but I said, no, nah, it's too nasty, and I'm not going to bring it here to church because you'll think I'm going to do something with it, but anyway, um, <laughs> there are some trees back here that need to be cleared out, so by the way, so we're going to have a day. That's just a, you know, Mark, if you're here, I don't know where you are. I thought I saw you somewhere. But uh, we are going to have a day to clean up the trees back here that fell down. Just, that's just an ad, advertisement for that. So bring your axe. Maybe a chainsaw would be more appropriate uh, for that as well. Um, but iron was very, very valuable. And as we learn in the story, this, this axe that was bought, brought by this, this prophet apprentice uh, was borrowed, was borrowed. And, and like all prophets, uh, not only just full, full-fledged prophets, but apprentice prophets, he was poor. He was kind of a non-profit prophet. And uh, think about it for a while. But anyway, uh, he, he didn't have much. You know, it's kind of like a college student uh, that's living, on, living in a dorm on, on student loans and eating ramen noodles. Uh, You've been there? Done that? I have. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the situation here. So this is a big deal that he loses it. But uh, we, uh, we see the story here and we're looking at it and we'll talk about it because it does have some things to teach us today. Now, Elisha was an apprentice of another guy we looked at in the Old Testament called Elijah. But then Elisha came along, and then after, in the next line, he brings up some other young prophets who wanted to learn how to be prophets. And so we learn in Scripture that he kind of started, I don't know if you call it a prophet school or what, but what had happened here is the dormitory must have been too small, and they needed to go and build some more lodging for the for the for the, all the young prophets, because everybody wanted to be a prophet, and, and they outgrew the school. So we read in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 6 these words, and we're going to look at them for a few minutes today. It said, the company of the prophets said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. So let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole. And let us build, I guess they're building a pole barn. I don't know what they're doing. You know, each of us get a pole, and let us build a place for, uh, there for us to meet. And he said, go. But one of them said to him, won't you please come with your servants? And Elisha thinks about it for a moment. He says, I will. And he went with them, and they went down to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. Pretty simple story. And here's the, the, the rest of the story, though, verses 5 through 7. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cries out, oh, no, my Lord. He said it was borrowed. And the reason he said that is because it was very valuable. It doesn't seem like much to us, but it was very valuable to him. He had borrowed it from somebody, obviously, and he couldn't find it because it was, the water was, it had probably, you know, he was swinging it, and it went, it flipped into the water somewhere, you know? And there's no way you can find it. It didn't have a scuba gear, it didn't have, you know, a snorkel outfit or anything. And it wouldn't have mattered in, the, in, in that river anyway, I'll just tell you. It, you couldn't have seen it anyway. And so he, that happens. 
Verse 6, the man of God asked, where did it fall? Where did it fall? When, it show, when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and he threw it in there and it made the iron float. Any of you guys ever seen iron float? No, never seen iron float before. Iron sinks, okay, iron sinks. And so he saw iron float. And then he says, Elisha says to the young man, he says, lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Now, two things this passage today talks to me about, and I hope talks to you about today. It's a literal translation of this and a literal application and also a metaphorical translation that'll, that'll help us to understand, I think, a big picture thing here. The first is, is this there, is this though. God isn't only concerned with the major tragedies and trials of your life, but he's also overseen your daily struggles. So often we think that God just cares about the big stuff, that God's, you know, too busy to care about the little things in life. And so we don't want to bother God with the little things in life. And we think he doesn't really care, but we see over and over and over again in scripture that God cares about everything. God cares about what you lost. That's the first, if you're going to fill in the blanks today, that's the first one. God cares about what you lost. God, the Bible tells us God cares about you because he cares, and because he cares about you, he cares about what you've lost. It says that not, it says this in Luke 12, 6, it says, and not five sparrows are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. Yet not one of them, it's basically saying they don't cost much, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, for you are worth more than many sparrows. See, he's saying, he's saying this, God cares about even the small things in life. And in a sense here, this, this accent seems what? Very insignificant. Very insignificant. But, in the, but it was a big deal to this, to this young man who lost it. And he knew he couldn't make good on it. He couldn't do anything because prophets didn't really have a lot of salary and a lot of benefits. And so he couldn't do that. It means that God cares about the small things in life, in your life as well, not just the big things. So when you pray, you can pray. Now, let me explain something to you. God cares about your algebra test, yes. But he doesn't take it for you. Because you remember, one of the things we talked about in the passage the last few weeks every time is it says what? The first, uh, the, the thing about digging ditches, he said, God, God provided the water in the ditches, but he told the people to dig the ditches. There's part that you do and a part that God does. The, set, the, the, the next week we talked about this lady who, who didn't have anything and she had all she had was one small jar of oil. And what did these, that story teach us? It says, it said, you know, God said, Here, here's, the, here's the oil, that's a small part. You go gather some jars up and then pour it in. God provided the oil, but she had to go do something. So yeah, while God, so if you have an algebra test or whatever this week, and you think that God is going to pray and not study, that's not the point, okay? That's not the point of Scripture. But God does care, and he will encourage you, and he wants you to do your best in life in, in regard to things. God wants to do that. He cares about the small things. It says in Nahum, it's really a, a strange prophet in the Old Testament, Nahum 1.7, it says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So the first thing in this passage I see is that God, because it's such a small thing, it kind of points to the fact that God cares for even the small things in life. A second point that really kind of goes along with this, and we'll get into the meat of the passage today, is that God can help you recover what you lost. God can help you recover what you lost. We'll kind of come back to that at the end. But you're going like, well, you know, I've lost some things that I don't think he can help you recover with. There's some things 
that are unrecoverable. He can't help you recover a lost child. He can't help you get your virginity back if you decide to have sex outside of marriage. He can't do that, but he can help you get hope back. He can help you get your faith back. There's no place that, no place that you're too far from God that God can't do that. I love what Jonathan Edwards, the Anglican pastor who lived in the 1700s, wrote. He wrote this. He says, Not one concern of ours is small if we belong to him. To teach us this, the Lord of all once made an axe head swim. He took, a little, he took and made it poetic, this, the point of this passage in a real sense. And so God, in a real sense, this first part I want to talk about is that God cares even for the small things in life. That's kind of the literal translation of this passage. But metaphorically, there's another bigger part of this that I think that we can learn as well. And this is what I want to focus our attention on today. And this is, is, is kind of about this. Yesterday when I pulled my axe out of, the, out of the shed, it had been down there for a long time, not used it for a long time. And the last time I used it, I actually chopped down a tree with it, chopped up some stuff with it. So guess what? You, what kind of edge do you think it had? Not very much of an edge. So what did I have to do? I had to get out my, I have a grinding wheel, so I got out my grinding wheel, turned it on. I had to find my grinding wheel where it was. You know, it was stuck in a shelf because I only use it about once every 12 years, you know. And I pulled it out and I started grinding on my axe and get the edge sharp again. The deal is this. We can lose, in a sense, this is what we're going to talk about today, we can lose our spiritual edge. And the question I have for us today is this, how have you lost your spiritual edge? How do you do that? And I think we'll all understand this as we go along this, this story today. Um, sometimes the reason we lose our spiritual edge or how we've lost our spiritual edge is because we used to have, when we first came to Christ, we had, we had, we had friendships that were based upon, upon uh, people who were Christians. But over the years, our, our friendships change. We may have moved and gone somewhere else, and we lose them. And so we, we, miss, we miss out on that. Maybe at one time, we were people who were passionate about serving in some way, passionate about something in our life, but we've lost that. Maybe at one time in life, you were passionate for prayer, but maybe you're not as passionate for prayer as you were at one time. Maybe at one time in your life, as a follower of Christ, you desired to see your friends come to faith and people you encountered. Everybody you saw was, in a sense, a target for evangelism for you. Because you thought, more than anything, you had this passion to help people to know Christ. But then you got a new set of friends and your standards eroded and you became cynical or hard-hearted. My story is this. When I was 14 years old, I came to Christ. And when I came to Christ at 14, I was already in the church. I'd already been in the church for a long time. But Christ became real to me. It became a deep commitment for me at 14 years old. And then over the next several years, everything about my life was focused upon God. I mean, when I was 18 years old, almost 19 years old, I, was, I had grown to the place in my relationship with God that my home church actually asked me to teach Sunday school with a bunch of teenage boys. I taught 7th and 8th grade boys, 22 of them by myself. Because I had a passion for God, and they saw that, and they, they understood that, and, and I was doing that. And then that same year, I was asked to go serve. At a, there was, in our town, there was a Baptist children's home, an orphanage, and, and they needed volunteers to come in and work with the kids after hours and teaching studies and, and kind of just befriending them. And so I went there, and I actually began to serve there as well. 
And I read my Bible consistently, and I, and I, and I did all those things. But something happened, and I lost my spiritual edge. And so by the time of 20, when I was 20 years old, between 14 and 20, losing my spiritual edge, I didn't go to church when I was 20. I'll tell you more about that in a second, okay? But the question is, we have to ask ourselves, have, have we lost our spiritual edge? And number two, how do you get your spiritual edge back? How do you get it back? I think the story here in Scripture gives us a couple of clues about that. How do you get your edge back? The first one is this. You need to be honest about where you lost it. You need to be honest about where you lost it. And what it says here in Scripture is this. It says this in 2 Kings 6.6. 6. It says, the man of God asked, Elisha asked this young man, he says, where did it fall? Where did you lose this literal axe head? Where did it fall? See, the axe head wasn't gone, was it? I mean, it wasn't out in space somewhere. It was not irretrievable. But it was in a place where it, it was no longer usable. It was, and so, the, so Elisha asked him, you know, where did you live? Where, where was the last place you saw it? And the thing we have to understand is this, where did you lose your edge? Where did you take a wrong turn? Where did things start to go bad where it went from here to here, where you've lost your spiritual edge, your passion for God, your passion for prayer, your passion for people? Where did it happen in your life? For me, and I'll share... The difference between 14 and 20 is that 20 years old, a bunch of stuff happened in my home church. We had a mess. I hope none of you ever go through the mess that I went through in my home church. You know, churches are fantastic places when people love one another and, and focus upon God. But churches can be the messiest places in the world and the most disappointing places in the world when people start focusing on themselves. And it went through a mess, and we went through this whole big rigmarole. And I, I, I was so turned off. I was so turned off by the church that I left the church. I wanted nothing to do with the church. And it, to me, church and God was, was equated. And the problem was is that, you know, I went out and, and, and I said, well, God, I still love you, but I, I just don't like the, the way things are happening. And so I lost my spirit. That's where it happened. And I, because of that, I stopped praying, I stopped reading my Bible, I stopped serving, I started doing all those things. For you, maybe, the reason you may have lost your spiritual age, maybe you got into a relationship you shouldn't have. I believe, folks, there's two things we need to do. One of the things we need to do is we need to have our closest friends need to be people who lift us up. Is that the people in your life that lift you up, your closest friends? But we also need to build relationships with people who need Christ, and so we lift them up. But still, the primary relationships need to be people who, you, who lift you up. And that's why when I was a youth pastor many years ago, one of the things I always told young people, and I see a bunch of them sitting down here, thank you guys, front row. Nobody else, nobody else is bold enough to sit on the front row except a bunch of guys, okay? But, uh, yes, okay. But uh, you guys are sitting on the front row too, okay. There's only, I don't know what the deal is. But... Uh, but the thing is, I told, told this, your friends will make or break you. They'll lead you toward God or lead you away from God. The primary people in your life need to be people that lift you up. And one of the th things we have to ask ourselves and be honest about, and maybe sometimes, and I see this so often, is we, we change friendships. We go to a different job. We move to a different town. And we don't develop friendships that lift us up and encourage us in a real sense. 
Maybe it's dropping a discipline in our life. Maybe at one time we were, we were doing things like reading God's word regularly, like going to small group regularly, like, like praying regularly, like tithing, doing all the things that help us to grow in our relationship with Christ. And we stop doing those. We, we use some excuse like, well, I don't have time anymore, or I don't have the, you know, I don't have the finances to do that anymore. Or... Other things happen. Sin comes into our life. It is something we try to cover up instead of dealing with it. And we think that nobody, we think that hiding sin will not hurt anybody except us. But the thing is, it hurts everything around us. And we can become people who find ourselves distanced from God. See, we don't, don't mean to drift from God, do we? We never mean to do that. We don't mean to stop praying with our spouse. We don't mean to be sucked into an empty pursuit of materialism. We don't need to get depressed. We don't, we don't mean to get addicted. We don't mean to lose our spiritual edge. But it happens. I would love to say, and it happened after that episode when I was 20 years old, I came renewed to Christ and some things happened. I went back to what I'd done before. And I wish, wish I could simply say, well, it never happened again. I never, never lost my spiritual edge again because then after that, the next couple of years after that is when I felt committed. I was an architectural major in college and I felt committed to go into ministry. And so I changed directions in life. And when I did that, the reality was, you know, when you go into ministry, man, you got to have a spiritual edge, right? Maybe. Because I was naive enough to think that, you know, following God and, and, and going into ministry was going to be something that was going to be filling and refreshing automatically in my life. And sometimes, folks, folks, it's draining. It's draining in our lives. And I know several times in my life I fought this and I found myself losing my spiritual edge again because I've gone away from the things. I find myself going through periods of time, and I've shared this with you before, where I, I pray with people, for people, but I'm not spending much time praying just because of a relationship with God. Or I'm studying the Bible constantly. I, do, I study the Bible every day. But I can, find, I can use that as an excuse to say, well, God, I don't need to study the Bible so I can look, get to know you better. And there's a difference. There's a difference. I love what Bill Hybels had to say a few years ago, and he went through this really, Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, one of the largest churches in America up in, up in Chicago. And he said this many years ago, he said, the way I am doing the work of God has destroyed the work of God in me. See, so often what happens, it's happened in my life, and it can happen in your life. And for me, it, I found out that I was a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. I had lost my first love. I would lost my spiritual edge. And it happens not because I wanted to, because I let things drift in life. So the first thing I have to do, and the first thing you have to do, if you ask yourself the question, how do you get back your spiritual edge? I, I hope many of you here are really, really on fire for God right now. I really do. Praise God for that. But I can't imagine everybody here being in that position. So we need to be honest about where we lost it. Secondly, we need to, with God's help, we need to take back what you lost. You need to take back what you lost. What does it say here? It says in, it's interesting, 2 Kings 6, 6, and 7, it says, When he showed him the place 
when, when this young man showed Elisha the place where he, the, the, the axe head had flown off, uh, flown off the, the axe handle, it says, Elisha cut a stick and he threw it in there and made the iron float. Now that's really cool. But that wasn't the end of the story because then he tells him to do something with the iron that was floating. The iron was once again within reach, right? But he says to him, he says, you lift it out. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. I mean, we've, been, we've seen the same, the same thing happen over and over and over in Scripture. God can only send the water, but you've got to dig a ditch. Uh, only God can multiply the oil, but you've got to gather the jars. Only God can make the axe head float, but you've got to lift it out. And so often Satan will say, when you've lost your spiritual edge, he'll say stuff to you like, well, it's too late. You couldn't possibly be close to God again like he used to be. He'll try to convince you of that. But with God, it's not too late to be the person you could have been. You have to lift it out. And when, when, when you have to identify where you lost it, and then you have to go to the place where you lost it, and you have to lift it out. You have to do what you did. See, you do what you can do, and you trust God to do what, he, what only He can do. In Revelations 2, it says this, you have forsaken the first love, you had it, the, the love you had at first. Then he says this, consider how far you have fallen, repent. And then what does it say? Repent, and then do the things you did at first. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just got to go back to the things that helped you to get close to God in the beginning, when you used to be close to God. Do the things you did at first. See, if you want what if you want you uh, what you once had, you must do what you first did. That's the way it is. For me, to get back my edge, my spiritual edge, back when I was 20 years old, I had to decide to make some decisions. I could have said, "Well, church isn't perfect; it's made of imperfect people." Okay, that's the deal. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to start studying my Bible again, even when I didn't feel like it. I'm going to pray, even when I don't feel God is close to me. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to serve, even when I don't want to. Because you don't, you don't feel your way into an action. You act your way into a feeling, and, and, and it comes that way. And recently, just a couple of years ago in the life of the church, I found myself getting spiritually burned out, losing my spiritual edge. And actually, it started longer, longer before that. So what did I do? I made a commitment to God. That God, you know, I, I want to I commit myself to seeking you first every day. I got into a habit of coming to the office and getting busy. Doing God's work. But I said, God, I want to do that. And I don't want to share my faith. I want to I do that. And let me tell you a couple of things I did. And I, you don't have to do what I did. You got to figure out what works for you, Okay. But four years ago when I went to Africa, I went to an environment where I began to see people in a different way. I realized, hey, man, we got it so good here, it's ridiculous. And because of that, I'm not going to come back and I'm not going to look at things the same way, and I haven't. And then this past year in November when I went to, when I went to Israel, you know, God rekindled my, my, my passion for Scripture and for, and for seeking Him and having a rela deeper relationship with Him. You do what you can do, and then you trust God to do what you cannot do. 
God wants to restore our passion for him. When I was reading through 2 Kings, and I was reading chapter 5 because I was trying to figure out whether I should teach that or chapter 6, it reminded me, and I'm going to hold this off till some other time because it's such a good story. The 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story about Elisha healing a guy named Naaman. And it reminded me of the best restoration story that I've ever been a, ever seen. Uh, there was a couple, and I've shared this before, a little bit of this before, but years ago when I was, when I was in seminary in, in North Carolina in a town called, uh, I was an uh, associate pastor of a church called Flat Rock Baptist Church. Isn't that a cool name? Flat Rock. I, I'm still looking for the rock. I don't know. I'm still looking for the hills in Germantown Hills, by the way, too. But the deal is... Uh, it's just the way it is. But uh, it's a bluff, okay? It's a bluff. It's not a hill. Come on. Germantown Bluffs is what it should be called, okay? But the deal is, the deal is, it was this, when I was serving there in seminary, and we met this family, and this family had four daughters, and one of the daughters, her name was Darnell. They all had cool names, Darnell, Rochelle, something else, I can't, all something like that. And um, I still remember her because during the time I was there, in Youngsville, North Carolina, uh, Darnell and her husband were separated in a sense, kind of. <laughs> a weird scenario. She was this mother of two, two kids. Her husband was totally unfaithful to her. He would go and leave, leave for days and come back, and she would accept him back. And Everybody was telling her, get rid of the bum. That was, that was their counseling advice, you know. <laughs> He doesn't deserve a break. And she said, you know, God has told me. I said, I've been praying about this, and God has told me that, 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 I wanna, that I'm, I'm to honor him first and then let him do what I can do and then let God only do only what he can do. He can only change my husband's heart. Man, no, but I thought, man. And I was there for, I was in that church for two years. And I saw this whole thing, this whole cycle of stuff going on, oh, going on, going on, going on. And about the time I left one day, as I was leaving there, going to get, leaving seminary, uh, my wife and I were moving to our first full-time ministry position. I heard, uh, just about a month after I left, that Darnell's husband had come to the church, came to the front of the church weeping, repenting of his sin, and, and asked for forgiveness. Had already asked for forgiveness from his wife, but asked for forgiveness from the church, and turned his life around. And I was skeptical, to be the, <laughs> say the least. I've seen people do that before, and it's not really been real. But the thing was, is that Darnell had never had a really great marriage. But the thing was, I heard and I kept in contact with him for the next, all about 10 years. And over the next 10 years, God just changed and restored a relationship. And it got even better than it ever been. Simply because Darnell had said, God, God I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to pray, seek you, do everything I can do, raise my kids the best I can. But then I'm going to trust you. And if you want this marriage to end, it'll end. But if you don't, I want it to continue and I want it to grow. I want it to be better. And that's what the story of, you know, the story of Elisha and uh, Haley Naaman. He healed him of a disease called leprosy. And in the passage of Scripture, when it says he heals him of leprosy, he says he restored his skin. He dipped him in the river, the, the, he went in the river and bathed seven times, and, and, and he came out, and his skin was restored. But the Hebrew word that's used as the word restore is the word shub, which means literally to be made better than new. 
to be made better than new. Restoration is not just getting you back to where you were. It's getting you better than you were. And that's what God, that's what I see in this story. God knows how to help you find what you didn't mean to lose if you have lost your spiritual edge. He doesn't want to just simply restore you to what used to be. He wants to make it better than it used to be. I love what it says in Deuteronomy 30. It says this, God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. He'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you were scattered. No matter how far away you end up, God, your God, will get, out, get you out of there and bring you back to the land your ancestors once possessed. It will be yours again. He will give you a good life and make you more numerous than your ancestors. God wants to restore what we lost. He cares about the small things, but he also cares about our having a relationship with him. And if you've lost your spiritual edge, your relationship, your passion for God, God can restore it. But you've got to identify where you lost it. And then you need to take back what you lost. And God could even make it better than it was. He can make it better than it was I'm always encouraged when I read God's word sometimes it's challenging cuts you to the core but the reality is God wants to restore all the parts of our lives he's that kind of God he wants you to do what you can do but he wants you to trust him to do what only he can do and what he can do is help us to have a greater life greater in a sense of a life that's more passionate towards God, a life that's more fulfilled, that life even in the ups and downs, even in the ups and downs, he can restore us to a better life, a greater life. This morning we're going to close doing two things. We're going to have communion together. And if last time we did communion here, oh well, not the last time, but two times ago when we did it, uh, we, we placed communion, the elements at the corners, and so I'll ask the people that are going to be doing communion, you're going to help out the ushers to go take your positions at the tables, go ahead and uncover the elements and stuff. And what we're going to do this morning is, this is just a time for you to reflect upon where you are with God. Have you lost your spiritual edge? Have you, do you still have the same passion for God? And one of, the, one of the things that communion does for us is, there's many things, but one is that reminds us of what God has done for us. What God has done for us. And as we partake of the elements of the bread and the juice, it reminds us that God loves us so much that he would do anything, and he has already done anything, to help restore us to his relationship with him. And so this morning, our band, I guess the band to come on out too as well, and as they take their positions this morning on the stage, in just a moment, they're going to play a song. We're just going to have you, there's four tables, there's one in this corner, all four corners of the room here. And we're going to do this. You, uh, as, as the band plays in the moment, after I pray, you can go to the table. Nobody's going to serve you. It's self-serve, okay? <laughs> you go to the table, you pick up the bread, you pick up a, a, a cup of juice, and you can go to somewhere else in the building. You can come back to your seats, and you partake of the communion as, as you feel led to at your own pace. But this is a time to remember what God has done for us by partaking of the bread as reminding reminded us of his broken body, and the juice reminder of the shed blood. And this is our time to make a commitment to God through this time of saying, God, I want to be real.
and I want to have the relationship that I've had with you. If it's great right now, man, I don't want, it to, I don't want to lose it. And I want to still do the things that I'm doing to keep me on track. But if I've lost my spiritual edge, God, help me to identify that. Then help me to take back which, what I've lost. To do my part and allow you, God, to do your part in my heart and in my life. This is our time to do that. And as we, after you've done that, come back to your seats and then we'll close with a song that we're, they'll be playing. And then we'll go home. And then next week we'll look at God's word again. But I hope this week, this is not the only time you encounter God. This is the one time that helps you get motivated, hopefully, to continue to be with God every day. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. We pray that you would enable us this morning, God, to uh, experience your love in such a way that uh, we would, uh, in a real sense, um, not lose sight of, uh, of how much you love us, God. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the, for, for, for the, the, the historical record here of, of Elisha and how this really simple man, a man who really had no qualifications, was used by you, God, was used by you in incredible ways to help a nation come back to you, God. And even today as we read the stories of Elisha and what he did, it teaches us how, God, you work among us. And how much you care for us, God, and how much you care so much that you would do anything. But God, you call us to do our part, to dig the ditch, to gather the jars, to lift out the axe head. And in doing so, God, then you do your part that only you, that only you can do. And that's the greater part, God. The part that we can't even imagine or even comprehend that you want to do in our lives. I am sure that when Elijah, Elisha uh, burned those plows and said, I'm leaving it all behind, he had no idea what she was going to do in his life. Not a clue. But he trusted you enough, God, to say, hey, I'm yours. And maybe this morning, God, there's someone here who needs to say that. Needs to say, God, I've been doing it my way all of my life. And now, God, I want to do it your way. And, God, we have to allow you to do that. And, God, I would just pray this morning that if there's someone here that needs to do that, that they would spend the time this morning, God. Maybe they don't need to take communion. Maybe they just need to sit in their seat and, and deal with you directly. Just praying to you, God, and asking you to forgive them for their sins. Asking you to come into their life and be the Lord, director of their life. Because that's the most important thing we can do, that first step towards you, God. Guide us now, God, this morning as we partake of this time and as we partake of the elements that this would be a meaningful time of focus and remembrance and commitment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.